Welcome to Truthfinder. This program searches for crucial answers to critical questions about belief, non-belief, and everything in between. Here is your host, Dr. Elijah Sadafor. Hello, everyone. We are continuing our five-part episode called, Was Darwin Wrong? Last time in part one, I established that this episode will set out to provide evidence for the claim that evolution is not true because natural selection does not exist. I began by making a distinction between science and Darwinian evolution. Next, I defined what evolution and natural selection are, and then I also clarified that natural selection is the exclusive means by which evolution happens. So, because natural selection and natural selection alone explained how single-celled organisms evolved into apes and humans, much is at stake if natural selection does not exist. Now, I will pick up where I left off last time and describe the first two reasons why natural selection is not real. So the first reason why natural selection does not exist is because natural selection lacks legitimate explanatory power. Natural selection lacks explanatory power because there is no sufficient explanation for natural selection itself. In order for natural selection to work, it requires a genetic mechanism to already be in place and fully functional. Now we have to be clear that the theory of evolution does not claim to provide an explanation for the origin of life, but for the diversity of life. Still, evolution can only get started if a world hospitable to life already exists, and if DNA is already present. Life functions with a genetic mechanism, so life could not have evolved without a genetic mechanism that stores information, codes for proteins, has the ability to replicate, and interacts with other physical entities according to fixed specific laws. Where did the structure of DNA come from? Where did the genetic code of DNA come from? What explains all these phenomena? These are very tough questions, and in general, scientists are baffled about how life originated. They may have a few public speculations, but no legitimate elucidations. Consider what Klaus Dose, a prominent worker in the field of origin of life research, says, quote, More than 30 years of experimentation on the origin of life in the fields of chemical and molecular evolution have led to a better perception of the immensity of the problem of the origin of life on Earth rather than to its solution. At present, all discussions on principal theories and experiments in the field either end in a stalemate or in a confession of ignorance. End quote. Antonio Lasconzo of the International Society for the Study of the Origin of Life reports, quote, The exact pathway for life's origin may never be known. End quote. Explaining the origin of life is a grandiose task that exceeds the scope of the current endeavor. Yet, some nagging questions present themselves. Was natural selection always in existence, or did it come to be after a genetic mechanism for life developed? If natural selection was in existence before a genetic mechanism for life developed, then why was it in existence since it had nothing to select for? 
if natural selection has enough creative power to explain the diversity of life, then what explains natural selection? You may object and say, we can't explain where gravity comes from, but it's real. Undeniably, you are right. But we can quantify gravity and therefore predict what will happen, for example, when two objects of different mass fall from the sky. It is the mere fact that we can measure gravity's power that validates it as a real force. Natural selection is not quantified. It is not a constant. It is not a mathematical variable that can be inserted into an equation. It has no forward-looking predictive power. It can only describe in retrospect. In the book of the same name, Richard Dawkins equates natural selection to a blind watchmaker. Well, has anyone ever stopped to ask, what explains the watchmaker? After all, a watchmaker is a complex being. Of what good is a watchmaker if he is blind? What does the blind watchmaker actually do in his shop? Why is life so astronomically complex if the process that made it is blind, deaf, and mute? Ultimately, blind watchmakers do not exist. You can have a blind man who is a useless watchmaker, or you can have a sightful watchmaker that can elegantly design and create, but a blind watchmaker is an oxymoron. Even when proponents of natural selection use terms like automatic or blind, these terms by themselves imply complexity and preconceived programming such as that found in an automatic alarm clock. When natural selection goes to work, what does it actually work on in DNA? Does it target whole genes, parts of genes, or the entire chromosome? Is natural selection working right now on me? On you? Is it always on and a constant force, or is its force variable? If natural selection is blind and without purpose, then over time, how does the process actually work? A process, by definition, implies sequential steps that are interrelated and thus dependent on one another. There is no sufficient explanation for any of these questions in the modern theory of evolution by natural selection. Natural selection lacks explanatory power because Darwin never explained how natural selection actually works, and neither does anyone today. Many in modernity allow others to interpret reality for them. There are many, for example, who passively allow third parties to tell them what current events really mean. Many neglect to take the reins of their own beliefs and discern what is really true. This is absurd, and this is relevant for the topic at hand, because there are many in contemporary society who interpret the facts of evolution for us and tell us what is really true. The genuine fact of the matter is that if people took an earnest look at what Darwin actually said about his own theory, what you will find is the gross absence of facts and supporting evidence. What Darwin put forth in Origin of Species was merely a hypothesis. He merely speculated about what could be without actually doing what science does, demonstrating how. But you don't have to take my word for it, and that brings me to an important point. Anyone actually serious about evolution must read The Origin of Species. How else can an informed opinion be generated? In the introduction to The Origin of Species, Darwin writes, quote, For I am well aware that scarcely a single point is discussed in this volume on which facts cannot be adduced, 
often apparently leading to conclusions directly opposite to those at which I have arrived. A fair result can be obtained only by fully stating and balancing the facts and arguments on both sides of each question. And this is here impossible. End quote. What Darwin is saying is that for the theory he's about to describe, many facts may be cited as evidence for the points to be made. However, those facts can lead the reader to conclusions that totally contradict evolution. What would be fair, according to Darwin, is to give a balanced presentation of those facts and weigh the evidence. However, such a rigorous course will not be pursued in the book because it would be, quote, impossible. This admission is important because before he even begins origin, Darwin minimizes the impact of his own conclusion that evolution is true. Darwin leaves the door wide open for evolution not to be true. What Darwin subsequently proposed in origin is that the variety observed in different species in nature developed by natural selection. He defined natural selection as the principle by which each slight variation, if useful, is preserved, and this preservation is the result of that variation being in some way profitable to survival. Because more individuals are born that can survive, individuals having any advantage, however slight, over others would have the best chance of survival and procreating their kind. So, the preservation of favorable individual differences is called natural selection, and natural selection can only work if a favorable variation is inherited. Of course, the struggle for existence or survival of the fittest is most significant within species rather than between them. That is, individuals of the same species struggle with each other and therefore the fittest survive. With this idea in mind, you must take note that survival of the fittest is predicated on an assumption that life is competitive and that in said competition, an organism must have an advantage which allows it to produce more offspring. This model fails to embrace the reality that life is cooperative and oftentimes it is the lack of an individual advantage that makes life possible and equips an organism to survive. For example, there are more bacterial cells in your body than there are human cells. The bacteria in your intestines enable you to process and properly digest your food. They also play a crucial role in modulating your immune system and regulating your mood. Human life is dependent on bacterial life, which is genetically distinct from the person. So when you have children, you don't pass on the DNA of the bacteria in your gut. The point is that having healthy bacteria in your gut imparts health benefits that are neither competitive nor are they heritable. Natural selection lacks explanatory power because the term natural selection is a deception. What do I mean by that? That natural selection does not actually select. According to Darwin, nature is not a conscious agent that neither selects anything nor induces variability. Rather, natural selection only preserves those beneficial variations that individuals already have. Darwin himself made an honest assessment of language when he said the term natural selection is a false term, not to be taken literally, but used metaphorically as a chemist would speak of the affinity of elements or a physicist would speak of the attraction of gravity. 
cognizant of this admission, Darwin still often referred to natural selection as having active, conscious, mystical, and seemingly divine powers. In Origin of Species, Darwin writes, quote, It may be metaphorically said that natural selection is daily and hourly scrutinizing throughout the world the slightest variations, rejecting those that are bad, preserving and adding up all that are good, silent and insensibly working whenever and wherever opportunity offers at the improvement of each organic being in relation to its organic and inorganic conditions of life. We see nothing of these slow changes in progress until the hand of time has marked the lapse of ages. End quote. If something selects, then there must be a selector. Yes, selection is metaphorical, but metaphors can only be used in science when quantifiable phenomena are being discussed. No one says, I saw a beautiful earth rotating on its axis away from the sun. They say, I saw a beautiful sunset. We can say this because we are fully aware of the causal forces that compel the earth to rotate on its own planetary axis and orbit around the sun. If natural selection is a causal agent that actually does something, no one has the right to use metaphorical terms until natural selection is properly quantified. Until then, the metaphors are left to the poets and philosophers. So selection is deceitful because no conscious agent is selecting. Selection denotes choice and also denotes intelligence as nature selects those organisms that are best adapted. Harvard's leading evolutionary authority, Ernst Mayer, in What Evolution Is, disclosed this veiled truth that involves not one selecting agent, but a host of other causal variables. What Darwin called natural selection is actually just what happens in life. Mr. Mayer writes, quote, The conclusion that these favored individuals had been selected to survive requires an answer to the question, who does the selecting? In the case of artificial selection, it is indeed the animal or plant breeder who selects. But strictly speaking, there is no such agent involved in natural selection. What Darwin called natural selection is actually a process of elimination. The progenitors of the next generation are those individuals among their parents' offspring who survived owing to luck or the possession of characteristics that made them particularly well adapted for the prevailing environmental conditions. End quote. A process of elimination is just that, a multivariable process, and luck, of course, is a word people use when something happens that they want to explain but can't do it in precise scientific terms. Natural selection lacks explanatory power because the analogy between artificial selection and natural selection actually discredits natural selection. Natural selection was a term derived from animal breeders and horticulturalists who employed artificial selection. So, in artificial selection, a man could select certain organisms with certain traits to suit his desires, like crossing all flowers of a certain color to produce more of the same. By analogy, in natural selection, nature selects those organisms best adapted to their environment. Death is therefore the final determinant of who was fittest to survive. In artificial selection, a person, being an intelligent and conscious agent, makes a mindful selection with a purpose and a future goal in mind. Nature, on the other hand, is mindless and preserves those best adapted without a purpose and without a future goal in mind. The difference, then, between artificial selection and natural selection is everything. 
Yet in spite of this reality, the main explanatory method Darwin used to clarify how natural selection works was analogy to artificial selection, despite the fact that the analogy was inherently and tragically flawed. Darwin never explained, using precise and definitive terms, how natural selection actually works. He only clarified what it did. Still, in spite of this fallacious logic, Darwin championed the blind, purposeless, non-directed power of nature over that of artificial selection. He called natural selection immeasurably superior to artificial selection by human beings. How could this be? Well, the way Darwin framed his hypothesis, natural selection was superior to artificial selection since people could only select for gross visible traits while nature could exercise discriminate tastes for very subtle, imperceptible adaptations over very long periods of time. Again, the difference between artificial selection and natural selection is everything, yet a deceitful comparison is still being used in modernity. Two examples would be where computer programs blindly select specific sequences of characters, or a monkey smashes keys in a typewriter and someone waits to see how long it is before they produce Macbeth. All these experiments involve an intelligent human mind that designs an experiment with a purposeful, predetermined goal in mind. And furthermore, when a computer or a typewriter is used, both of these machines are also designed. So, both of these analogies do not demonstrate the power of natural selection. They merely demonstrate the effectiveness of artificial selection in a designed experiment. Natural selection lacks explanatory power because Darwin's attempt at an explanation was so fluid it could be molded to explain away anything. What Origin of Species contains is hundreds and hundreds of pages of Darwin explaining away a hypothesis with philosophical conjectures without ever clarifying a precise scientific explanation for how natural selection works. What Darwin did do is provide many imaginary illustrations. For example, when Darwin postulated how a complex organ like an eye developed, he did not explain a pathway. He merely stated the observation that different types of organisms have different types of eyes and thus suggested that possibly maybe intermediates may have existed. As Gertrude Himmelfarb writes in Darwin and the Darwinian Revolution, quote, In Darwin's theory, cause and effect were related in such devious ways as to permit almost any conjecture and to resist all control and verification, end quote. She also writes that Darwin's response to his critics demonstrated less the consistency of his theory, but rather the theory's plasticity in bending itself to accommodate other explanations. She also writes, quote, Darwin could summon up enough general, vague, and conjectural reasons to account for this peculiar fact. If others did not, he had at hand a different but equally general, vague, and conjectural set of reasons to account for that, end quote. Essentially then, because Darwin only described what natural selection did, his logic pointed to effects in reality without thoroughly explaining the causal agent. So what he did achieve in Origin of Species was merely the construction of a logic of possibility. Under normal circumstances, logic eliminates possibilities in order to arrive at a concrete conclusion. The logic that Darwin used in Origin marched in the opposing direction so that a massive heap of speculations equated to a reasonable probability. Natural selection lacks explanatory power because serious and legitimate doubts about natural selection are hundreds of years old. 
Skepticism about Darwin's theory is not new, and when we look back into history, what we see is that the scientific community was already raising serious doubts about Darwin's theory soon after Origin was published. Ten years after Origin was published, Alfred Russell Wallace published a famous critique of Darwinism in Quarterly Review. Wallace was a naturalist, a geographer, and an anthropologist. As a whole, Wallace was very doubtful of Darwin's explanation for evolution by natural selection. In fact, Wallace's essay was a crucial moment because it marked a falling away in faith of one man who was previously not only a champion of the idea of evolution, but also a lead architect in constructing the hypothesis. In short, Wallace's main point of contention was that Darwin's theory could not offer a plausible explanation for several components of life, including the mind, speech and articulation, the human hand, and the external human form. The only way, for example, to explain people walking upright on two feet is an unknown ancestor who wanted to stand up to see over tall grasses. Why do only humans have language, or morals, or math, or logic, or music? This list is abbreviated, but you get Wallace's point. In regards to natural selection, Wallace writes that not only does selection imply a selector, but what happens in nature is not the effect of a solitary selection force over life, but the result of the interaction of many variables in nature. For example, a mystical force does not select sand to fall on the beach. Rather, this is the result of quantifiable phenomena like gravity, time, and the changing of the tides. Additionally, the implication that those who are most likely to survive do survive is a tautology. So, according to Wallace, because Darwin personified and bundled various natural causes under the term natural selection, it is impossible to say what was definitively causal in their survival of an organism. Why is that? because an organism is neither independent of its environment, nor is it totally dependent on its environment. Higher organisms are conscious agents who interact with a myriad of variables throughout the course of their entire life, and their survival is thus the result of a myriad of variables. Before I move on to the next reason why natural selection does not exist, I must mention sex, which historically speaking, is one of Darwinism's greatest enigmas. Any organism that reproduces sexually is at a genetic disadvantage because instead of transmitting 100% of its DNA to the next generation, it only passes on 50%. This means that to a degree, sexual reproduction decreases fitness and minimizes the selfishness of genes. Sex points to one of evolution's greatest mysteries, not only why it evolved, but also explaining how the act of sex sexual differentiation, and sexual organs developed. These processes necessitate not only an explanation for a male developing physical sexual traits independent of and compatible with a female, but also developing sperm and eggs that are biologically compatible to form a baby. The number of sexes is also an enigma in that we have two, but are unable to clarify why we don't have three, six, or ten. Then, of course, there is the idea of sexual selection, where females choose to mate with males because of certain secondary characteristics. This does not involve the non-random selection of random variants, but is the result of a conscious choice by a conscious agent. Ultimately, an explanation is only as valid as its details and the thing that is trying to explain. 
according to Darwin's original formulation, natural selection presupposes to explain how life diversified, but never explained how. Furthermore, natural selection itself is a misleading metaphor that lacks both an explanation for itself and was validated by a fraudulent analogy to artificial selection. As originally constructed in origin, there were no concrete facts to support the theory of evolution by natural selection, only speculations. Therefore, natural selection is not a real scientific phenomenon, only a yearning of the imagination predicated on fantasy. But we have only begun to scratch the surface of how unrealistic this fairy tale is. Get the bold and revolutionary new book from Dr. Sadoffel titled, Why Evolution is Not True Because Natural Selection Does Not Exist. Go to truthfinder.org and download your free ebook today. Download, read, and share. Why Natural Selection Does Not Exist, Reason Number Two, Because Natural Selection is Predicated on Too Many Assumptions. Many fail to recognize that evolution by natural selection only becomes plausible if one makes numerous assumptions that are not validated by the evidence. This makes the theory inherently flawed and transforms Darwinian evolution into a pseudoscientific ideology as opposed to a legitimate theory based on evidence. Even Darwin was not confident that his own theory was plausible. In Origin of Species, he writes, quote, whether natural selection has really thus acted in adapting the various forms of life to their several conditions and stations must be judged by the general tenor and balance of evidence given in the following chapters. End quote. In the end, the only way to determine if natural selection acted is by assumption, because there really is no determinant way to clearly show that it acted. Darwin agreed with this assertion and admitted that it is very difficult to quantify how many adaptations natural selection actually preserved. Darwin writes, quote, It is very difficult to decide how far changed conditions, such as of climate, food, etc., have acted in a definite manner. There is reason to believe that in the course of time, the effects have been greater than can be proved with clear evidence. When a variation is of the slightest use to any being, we cannot tell how much to attribute to the accumulative action of natural selection and how much to the definitive action of the conditions of life. End quote. Evolution by natural selection assumes that there is no limit to genetic variability and that hominids can evolve into humans. This is in direct conflict with concrete reality that tells us that indeed, species do change, but they remain the same species. The theory assumes that changes observed in the fossil record were the result of evolutionary forces, despite the fact that there is no way to go back into time and ascertain why organisms changed. It assumes that if we give the blind forces of nature enough time, distinct genetic differences can evolve and cause speciation. It assumes the erroneous concept of accumulation or the idea that the process of natural selection makes multiple linked, highly improbable smaller steps toward a big genetic change, and so accumulation is therefore more likely than a big single step. Accumulation is logically, mathematically, and genetically unsound. Darwin explains his formulation of accumulation in Origin. He writes, quote, Our ignorance of the laws of variation are profound. 
whatever the cause may be of each slight difference between the offspring and their parents, and a cause for each must exist, we have reason to believe that it is the steady accumulation of beneficial differences which has given rise to all the more important modifications of structure in relation to the habits of each species. End quote. This statement is actually very crucial because Darwin originally had no idea that variation amongst individuals was caused by genes, which do have limited variability. Hence, out of ignorance, he assumed that variations had potential unlimited variability and thus could steadily accumulate over time in populations. Truly, we cannot fault Darwin for what he did not know, but the modern theory of evolution is cognizant of genetics, which does erect a biological wall that prevents unlimited change and thus how far accumulation goes. So, for example, when Darwin speculated how an eye developed, he truly had no idea of how astronomically complex even just one cell that constituted the eye really was. The point is that for Darwin, there may not have been a logical impossibility for accumulation based on 19th century knowledge and assumption, but based on 21st century scientific facts about genes and cellular complexity, there are many impossibilities actively working against accumulation. In The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins writes about the indisputable improbability of evolution. He attempts to clarify said unlikelihood by appealing to the process of natural selection. He writes, quote, Natural selection is a cumulative process which breaks the problem of improbability up into small pieces. Each of the small pieces is slightly improbable, but not prohibitively so. When large numbers of these slightly improbable events are stacked up in a series, the end product of the accumulation is very improbable indeed, improbable enough to be far beyond the reach of chance." End quote. Dawkins then goes on to say that many do not understand the power of accumulation or that evolution scales up Mount Improbable step by step in small discrete steps. The problem with this logic is that while one improbable event is unlikely to happen, a series of improbable events is even more unlikely to happen. A person being struck by lightning is very improbable. A person being struck by lightning, surviving an earthquake, and then winning the lottery is so much more improbable that it is not plausible. And, as we will discuss, because mutations are the exclusive source of genetic novelty in natural selection, and because mutations are rare events, climbing Mount Improbable is certainly not analogous to taking small leaps up a rocky cliff. It is analogous to leaping over countless uncrossable gulfs up a vertical slope. Even more, taking small incremental steps that are stacked in a series implies goal-oriented, purpose-driven behavior by a mindful, conscious agent. There are many grandiose assumptions made by natural selection in that it is presumed to be causal in affecting evolutionary change in speciation. In our current discussion, David Hume's skepticism about cause and effect assists us tremendously. Hume argued that we often make assumptions about cause and effect between two events in a particular relationship, but that connection is not necessarily true. Allow me to explain. In his classic thought experiment, Hume invites his readers to imagine a pool table with a player, pool stick, a cue ball, and an eight ball. If the player seeks to put the eight ball in the corner pocket, the player looks, aims, adjusts, and then with the swinging motion of the arm wielding the pool stick, he strikes the cue ball, which then strikes the eight ball, which then lands in the corner pocket. 
The lesson is that many physical events happen to enact this end result. That is, there are events that caused other events. What Hume then argued is that we can use our senses to see certain events transpiring in a contiguous relationship, but we cannot perceive the actual forces working to cause the events. For example, we can't actually sense the kinetic energy being transferred from the cue ball to the eight ball when the former strikes the latter. So, Hume posits, since we use our senses to determine what is really true, and we can't sense causality directly, then we cannot know causality with exactness. Hume was simply making the case that knowing causality with precision is beyond human sensory experience and reason. Scientists use the fossil record as proof that natural selection worked in the past to cause speciation. With this in mind, let's use Hume's analogy as an analogy. Let's say the eight ball falling in the corner pocket is the survival of the individual. For all times past, that event is memorialized by a fossil which, beyond all reasonable doubt, tells us that the individual existed. The fossil does not tell us why that individual survived. In other words, we do not have access to the information that tells us what caused the eight ball to fall into the corner pocket. This is the downfall of fossils. They preserve the remains of an organism, but they do not preserve the forces that preserve the organism. Figuratively speaking, no one was there to observe the pool player using the pool stick to strike the cue ball, which knocked the eight ball into place. And yes, natural selection is a process which makes the analogy stretch even farther because now one must be able to observe an endless string of pool players knocking eight balls into corner pockets. Hence, in the case of evolution by natural selection, we may have a record of the end result of a supposed process, the fossil, but are unable to know with certainty what caused the survival of said organism, natural selection or not. Because we can't sense causality directly, then we cannot know causality with exactness and therefore can only assume that what caused survival was natural selection. Causal connections that are assumptions are neither subject to verification or falsification, so no one is in a position to say it was natural selection or the flying spaghetti monster that set events into motion. Consequently, we have no rational support for believing that natural selection was causal in survival. What we do have is postulation. In science, assumptions that are not subject to scrutiny are fairy tales that do not belong to the domain of science. Hence, in Darwinism, what does exist is merely the presupposition of a connection between present evidence and what we infer from them. What does not exist is natural selection. In fact, causal inference motivates not only assuming effects, but also expecting it. So, Darwin conceived of natural selection as a cause and expected to see evidence of it everywhere in nature without ever explaining how the cause induces the effect. This fraudulent logic amounts to an impenetrable hoax because natural selection's effects can be observed everywhere, yet a precise explanation is nowhere to be found. What I hope is now clear is that there are many holes in Darwin's theory when it was first formulated. The objections made thus far dealt primarily with what Darwin postulated in Origin and even a cursory analysis of his book reveals these blatant flaws. As I mentioned in the introduction, if people actually took the time to read Origin for themselves, all of these problems would become immediately apparent. 
Sadly, many people do not take the reins of their own thinking and as a result, allow others to interpret the facts for them. I seriously doubt anyone can actually read Origin and have the same faith in a flawed theory as if they never bothered and passively accepted evolution as is and assumed it to be true. Now that the logical objections to natural selection have been discussed, I will move on to reasons why natural selection does not exist based on modern science. Next time, I will move on to the third, fourth, and fifth reasons why natural selection does not exist, because it does not explain life at the molecular level, because mutations are insufficient to explain genetic novelty, and because adaptive power is internal, not external. Until next time. Thank you for listening. For more valuable content, including transcripts and research notes, please visit truthfinder.org.